we are live. Hello, hello. Welcome to Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. And if you haven't joined us before, welcome. You might want to check our back catalogue out. We are up to, gosh, we're in our 30s, 20s now. Yeah, like well, well into we've the 30s, well. I think. Yeah, 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 we've done really well. It's been a while. Um, it has been a while. Now here on Strong Tea, what we like to do is talk about taboo subjects or things that we just think people need to learn more about. Um, they could be topics that people should be talking about more or things that just myself and Katie are interested in. And we just want to educate and spread the word. Um, and today is no exception. And today is an episode that myself and Katie have been super, super excited for. Um, but before we get into all of that, what's really important is, Jonathan, our guest, what are you drinking? Well, actually, I'm drinking water. Ah, <laughs> Showing oh, us okay. up. Very okay. healthy. <laughs> I've, I've done my coffee, I've done my lemon drizzle cake, I've had my swim, and I thought, just bring it down. Oh, I, I mean, that sounds much better than what I'm drinking. And lemon drizzle cake, coffee, and a swim. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me to shame. Uh, <laughs> what are you drinking, Katie? Well, I have gone for um, a lovely uh, bird and blend tea, and it's mulled cider. Yeah, and it's uh, apple pieces, ginger, rosehip, hibiscus, cinnamon, cloves, and lemon peel. It's really nice. Beautiful. I know, it's from their Christmas range last year. Very, very fancy, yeah. What about you? So I've gone Bird and Blend, and I've gone Snowball, which has got chocolate, coconut, and teeny tiny marshmallows in the tea bag. (gasps) I know! If you ever get the tea bag, it's got teeny tiny little marshmallows in it. What does it it taste like? Heaven. It tastes like heaven. It's it's really nice. The chocolate's not too sweet, but it's it's lovely. Yeah. How do you beat that? It tastes like heaven. Well, how'd you get the marshmallows out? Oh no, oh no, you're thinking too much into this, Jonathan. (laughs) Just buy an extra bag. (laughs) (laughs) You want them that much? Cheese and marshmallows. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like it's very it's very eclectic mix today of teas, isn't it? And water, of course. Um, but it leads us on nicely to introducing our wonderful guest today. And I can't say enough about this gentleman. We have been, Vicky and I have been so excited about um, chatting to you. Uh, today on the show, we have the wonderful Jonathan Blake. Now, Jonathan is a British gay rights activist. He's a former member of the Lesbians and Gays Supporting Minors in the 1980s. And the reason we're speaking to him today is because he's one of the first people in the United Kingdom to be diagnosed with HIV. And today is one of the oldest, but I will say the most fabulous surviving people in the country with the illness and throughout his life has done extensive campaigning for HIV and AIDS to educate the masses and also to support those who have been diagnosed and I can't tell you Jonathan just how uh, honoured we feel to have you chatting to us today so thank you. Thank you I'm, I'm slightly overwhelmed by that wonderful <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, just ignore that. We'll sweep it under the carpet. We'll just move yeah. it. Anyway. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, we'll blow your trumpet many more times. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, you're steady. Um, but to start with, I think 
like starting from right from the beginning um can you just tell us your story because your life story is quite incredible so right from the start just well, you, with from, it. You, you you don't want from birth because uh, <laughs> I mean I have I have I've been really really fortunate in terms that that, that um I went to school um was never academic um but had this really wonderful um, teacher who was a friend of my parents, Eileen Fisher. And Eileen took my mother aside and said, look, Jonathan may not be academic, but he is creative and you need to nurture his creativity. My mother loved theater, loved theater, loved ballet, loved opera. My father would sleep through it all. <laughs> so we were sent away to school. We lived in Birmingham. We were sent away to school. I mean, how crazy is that? But, you know, hey-ho, my mother used to come on a Saturday and collect me from school and would then take me to the Stratford Memorial Theatre. And we would go up into the gods and we would see the shows. And I remember the very first show that I saw was Midsummer Night's Dream, Charles Lawton playing Bottom, and so that 1959, and I just remembered that there was this solid wall of the city of Athens, and from nowhere this wood appeared. I mean, it was just magic, and I was completely enthralled, and that was it. Two weeks later, we went back. This time it was Charles Lawton playing Lear in King's Lear. And it was phenomenal. I was just completely blown away by it. So I turned to my mother at the end of it and I said, I'm going to be an actor. And my mother said, well, that's wonderful, dear. I hope not like John Gilgood. I mean, what should a 10-year-old know about <laughs> John <laughs> She was obviously trying to tell me something, but I was, you know. <laughs> I didn't pick up on it for years, but, you know, it, it was extraordinary. Um, but from, from then on, that was it, and that's where I was going. So kind of academia went out the window. Um, it was always about wanting to be an actor. But I was always very shy and reticent about it. And actually, when I got to, to, to senior school, to public school, it was my elder brother and we used to fight like cat and dogs. Mm -hmm. but he went to the person who was in charge of school plays and said, my brother wants to be an actor, you should use him. I mean, the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, so, so anyway, I um, got through that. And then uh, when I left school, I then applied to go to drama school. And I went to a place called Rose Bruford down in Kent in Sidka. And um, my mother was sort of slightly concerned that this was, as well as being a, a, a drama school, it also got you a teaching diploma. So that was fine. I could be a teacher. I mean, I, I was going to be a teacher. I wanted to be an actor. That's that. that. <laughs> so yeah, so, so I worked in theatre. I sort of, I was a jobbing actor for about God, sort of 10, 11 years, did television, film, what have you, um, which was all right. And then in October 1980, 
too. Um, every single, well, actually sort of prior to that, I'd had periods when I was out of work and I was always very fortunate. I used to work at a place called Joe Allen, which is uh, in the States is an American hamburger restaurant, famous for the fact that all their waiters are out of work actors. <laughs> so when Joe Allen were opened in London, I applied to go and work there periods when I was out of work. And they did indeed take me on. And anytime I got a job, I could leave, go and do the job, come back. So that was wow. perfect. But in February 81, I'd been to San Francisco. A very dear friend of mine had got married in San Francisco. I love steam baths. So I did the steam baths. <laughs> that was that. Um, kind of June, July 82, every single lymph node in my body was exploding. I was walking around like a gorilla. I could no longer work at Joe Allen's. I was in a lot of pain. Um, and eventually I went to see my GP in, uh, in uh, Shadwell. I lived in the East End of London. Um, and as I walked into the room, I remember she got up and she put her hand out and she said, shake my hand. And as I shook her hand, she felt the lymph node that was in the crook of my arm, which was really painful. And I went, ow, what did you do that for? She said, that's the sailor's handshake. Whenever the sailors would go into port, they would shake the hands of the women or the men they were going to. And if that lymph node was up, it was a sign of syphilis and they wouldn't go with them. So she said, have you been for a test recently? So I said, well, I've had syphilis, but no, I haven't. So she said, I suggest you go to, uh, to the special clinic. So at that point, I used to go to James Pringle House, which was part of the Middlesex Hospital. And I arrived there and they were suddenly all over me. And they wanted to do a biopsy and they sort of uh, put me in a, in a, a side ward. Back in those days, if you were queer, you were always put on sideboard. So, you you know, your queerness wouldn't affect the rest of the hospital. I mean, you know, things have not necessarily changed. But anyway, um, so they did a biopsy and it came out that I had some virus which was called persistent lymphadenopathy. Uh, there was no cure for it. There was no medication. There was nothing that they could do. Um, Obviously, when the time came, there would be palliative care. You know, we had a national health service, uh, you know, for which you know, I am so thankful. And, and that was it. And I remember kind of once I'd been given this diagnosis, just being told, yeah, I could go home. And I remember going back to my flat in the East End and I just closed the door and I kind of completely collapsed. And I didn't get in touch with people. And you have to remember, there are no computers, there are no, you know, mobile phones, it's landlines or letters. Mm. You know. So, you know, that was really just awful. But because I'd lived in the States, I was getting information. And there was also a marvelous um, newspaper called Capital Gay and they were writing about what was happening. So I was beginning to hear what basically lay in store for me. And I would 
go to the bars because I wanted to be with people. I needed to be with people, but I was sending out all the vibes, don't come near me because, you know, I have this, um, basically this killer virus coursing through my veins and I don't want to pass it to you. So I would pick up copies of, of Capital Gay and, you know, that was that. Anyway, in the December of that year, I decided that this was not going to go away. This was not good. So I was going to take my own life. And I prepared, I got run a, a hot bath. I was going to do it the Roman way, slip my wrists, bleed out, take some pills, what have you. And then the voice of gold and my mother came in my head and Jonathan you clear up your own mess. You don't leave it for others to clear up. And I thought, so I couldn't do it. So then it's like, okay, nice Jewish boy. You can't kill yourself. You better get on and live. But how am I going to do that? And I picked up a copy of, of Capital Gay. And in it, I found this tiny little advertisement Gays for a nuclear-free future are running a coach to go to a stand together around Greenham Common, the American Air Base and Women's Camp, and Burfield and Aldermaston, the two British nuclear establishments. Um, and everyone was welcome. And I thought, all right, that's going to be my re-entry into society. So I remember girding my loins to, 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 to go to Russell Square. Arrived at Russell Square, I could see the coach outside gaze the word. And I thought, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> and as I was about to turn on my heels to flee, this voice said, hello, my name's Nigel, who are you? <laughs> And I was absolutely stopped in my tracks. And I turn around and I see this guy who is wearing, he's got green Wellington boots on, he's got <laughs> ochre and, and crimson pantaloons. He had this um, crimson feral singlet and this mop of black curly hair. And that was Nigel Young. And I just went, oh, oh, Jonathan. And we just walked off to the coach and had the most amazing time. And at the end of it, sort of, I said, why don't you come and have tea with me in my flat in the East End? So the next day he arrives with a bunch of anemones and two jam donuts. I mean, he's brought flowers <gasps> and he's brought tea. Oh. <laughs> so we're sitting there and he says, look, you're living isolated in the East End. I'm living in North London. I know of a squat in Brixton. Why don't we move in together? And I thought, I'm going to be dead in a couple of months. Why not? So we did. And, you know, so he knew somebody who wanted to sublet my flat, so that was fine. So we moved this squat in, in Brixton. And then after three months, we had to leave. Um, the, the, the matriarch of, of the squat had a boyfriend who was like 16 and dealing drugs. And she'd found the drugs and she was really opposed to drugs. So she found them, challenged him. And he said, oh, no, they're not mine. They're Nigel's. I'm just looking after them. 
for them. So she threw us out. Nigel was brilliant. He didn't say, they're not mine, they're his. Just thought, she'll find out. But he knew he'd lived around here. And he'd lived here actually sort of in 1981. And he and his friend, Peter Bradley, had tickets to go and see Julius Caesar at the London Coliseum with Janet Baker. So they had gone off to the Colosseum. The riot had ensued. They kept back to, to Brixton. They're not allowed. And they said, but we live up there. Eventually they, they, they let them through. Oh my God. So, so he knew Brixton and what's his name. And he knew, he'd heard on the grapevine that there were two rooms going in 146 Mail Road, which was part of Brixton Housing Co-op but it had been an old lesbian and gay squat that had then basically been instrumental in forming Brixton Housing Co-op. So we came up with our bags, asked if the rooms were still available. They said, yeah, we went in, we had a cup of tea, not so strong, but we had a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, and the outcome was that, yeah, we could, we could join, the, the rooms were there. So we joined Brixton Housing Co-op, which for me was brilliant because I needed displacement activity. I needed to keep busy doing things so I wasn't thinking about the virus and what was going to happen to. So one joined Brixton Housing Co-op. And then from there, Nigel was very politically active. So when Lesbian and Gay Men Support the Minors started, it was kind of a no-brainer we would join it. So we did. And again, more displacement activity. It was just, it was wonderful. I mean, it was the most amazing kind of period, you know, fighting Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what could be, what could be better? I mean, just extraordinary. Wow. I, I just, like, there are so many things to just pull out of that. I mean, <sighs> I don't really know where to start. I mean, the thought that you talked about when you were first diagnosed about how you went home and just closed the door to your flat and felt suicidal. I mean, it must have been such a huge impact on oh, your mental health. Absolutely. I mean, you know, all that one was hearing was just awful, awful stories, young people dying. I mean, I was 33, you know, so I partially had my life. I mean, you know, there were, there were 20 year olds, there were sort of, you know, 21 year olds. And you have to remember that, that, that we're all illegal, you know? Mm. I mean, we, I was by that time, but you know, when I came to London and, and was first exploring my sort of, you know, gayness, um, I was illegal because you know, the age of consent was 21 for, 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 for gay people. You know, it was 16 for the breeders. Mm. French. <laughs> you know, was, was, was different. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. Well, well you know, so, so, so that was always incredibly difficult. Mm. And it took, you know, actually until the Labour Party got in, 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 1997 for the age of consent to, to, to be, and they, the Labour Party wanted to bring it down to 18 and there was outrage. And eventually it was, it was brought to parity to 16. It's just, um, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to 
be given a diagnosis like that? I mean, I mean, I'm 37 now and I can't even imagine what it's like at this age. What what sort of reactions did you get from people around you? Like, did you did you tell family members? Did you tell friends? I was I was very fortunate in that my younger brother, who had gone to, you know, the bright one, um, who had <laughs> had uh, had gone to um, Oxford, read greats, whatever that is. I think it's, you know, philosophy and ancient history and Greek and Latin and goodness. <laughs> anyway, um, he had come out, was working at the home office, thought, I never wanted to do this. I always wanted to be a doctor. So he retrained. He went to back to, to the, the, the familial home and went to, to Birmingham um, Medical School trained to be a doctor so um, he had worked at the Chelsea and Westminster he came to London um, and then worked in London he was actually at the at the um, Westminster Hospital the Westminster Hospital was closed down because it was a prime site became the Chelsea and Westminster so he had worked um, in, in the Kobler clinic which was the HIV institute so I told him that I was HIV positive um, because I felt that if he knew being a, a medic that when I got ill he would be able to explain to my parents what the realities of it because there was so much misinformation I mean you know the right-wing press just were using it to, to, to beat you know gay men over the heads you've brought it on yourself I mean James Anderton I mean you know um, so I was fortunate in terms of, of, of having that. And yes, sort of bit by bit, I, I told close friends. But these are always, you know, these decisions are really difficult to, to make mm -hmm. because A, there was so much stigma um, and people's reactions are, are quite strange. Sometimes you think that someone is going to be absolutely supportive and they're shocked and appalled and kind of want no more to do with you mm -hmm. so it's it's really difficult and did you find sorry sorry no no I totally interrupted you then did no, you no. find that there was a mixed reaction from the gay community as well there, there was you know um for the most part the gay community was was really supportive but but there were sort of people who couldn't deal with it and of course there was nothing so it was the, 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 the likes of the friends of, of Terry Higgins mm -hmm. who realized that there was nothing um, and created the, the Terence Higgins Trust. Um, and that kind of was, was the start. Then there were all kinds of other places. So there were places like Body Positive and Body Positive were all over the country, sort of connected and all over the country. But when the medication eventually sort of came on um, the money that that was being given to drop-in centers which I think are really really important was kind of removed um, because the medication was so expensive and I mean I have to say that that I loathed the the, the, the don't die of ignorance campaign because I felt that it kind of was built on fear and it created stigma. 
But I have to say that of Norman Fowler, that he actually kind of, A, understood that this was a virus and it could affect anybody. Um, and that he put money into, he, he made sure that, that the government put money into refer, research and development to the, the pharmaceutical companies, but also for these drop-in centers. And that was something that was really, really important, having those places that you could go that were safe places where you felt safe, where you could talk about it, uh, was, was, was really, really important. It, you talk about um, being diagnosed in 1982, um, and I've looked at sort of extensive research and it says that the, the government outwardly did nothing until around about 1985. And of course, all that time it was fueled, you know, they fueled the public's ignorance and there was so much misinformation by the press, um, you know, calling calling HIV and AIDS things like the gay plague. You know, that must have been so infuriating, living with that diagnosis and seeing that nothing was being done. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. It was. But I suppose that, that in some ways, because now I've had this relationship, because when I met Nigel, I told him of my diagnosis. And... I assume that he'd heard, but I'm not sure that he did hear at that point. <laughs> you know, some of those things that, that you know. Um, so, but because of having met him and, and now being part of a housing co-op, of being part of a, a community, a lesbian and gay community, because where I live, there are four houses on one street, there are five houses on the other. There's this big communal garden. So... You know, um, so there was this extraordinary kind of maybe false security that, that I was living in. And because we'd been involved with the miners' strike and lesbian and gay men support miners and all that had sort of moved on, I was kind of involved with that. And there were times that, 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 that people would attack us. Why are you supporting the miners when there are people dying from, from HIV and AIDS? Why aren't you supporting us? Well, you know, for me, I was supporting them because I was living with it. I was dealing with it. I was talking about it. You know, I was, I was never quiet about my diagnosis, you know, because I felt it was important that people knew. Sure. Um, so it, it, was, it was. It was a very strange, strange time. What you, was your, sorry, Jonathan, no, I, keep, I keep interrupting you. I'm so I, sorry. I, I could talk for days. <laughs> you need a little flag to wave up. Yeah, I would like to talk next. <laughs> um, I guess my question is, obviously, with those people saying to you, why aren't you supporting others, you know, us with HIV and AIDS and whatnot? Can you remember or tell us when you actually met other people with HIV and AIDS and how that felt? Oh, well, I mean, one often met them because of, 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 of A, being part of, of a sort of a, 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 a community. So there were many people in lesbian and gay mm. support, the minors, who were HIV positive. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the sadnesses is, is that Mark, who, Ashton, who, who, you know, he was 
late, everybody got, you know, our diagnoses were late because one didn't know about it. There wasn't information mm -hmm. being given. So by the time you presented, you were pretty far along the line. And of course there was no medication, there was nothing. You know, so there was very little that, 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 that one could do. You know, I was one of the fortunate ones in terms that there was something called Septrin. Septrin was a, a relatively inexpensive antibiotic, but it was not easy to take. But if you could tolerate it, it meant that the PCP, this pneumocystic pneumonia, which is a form of pneumonia where you basically drown in your own lungs, um, that would keep the, the, the PCP at bay. And I tolerated it. A lot of other people didn't, and then you were having to have kind of inhalers and all kinds of things. So, so, but yeah. And then of course you do later on, you start to get survivor's guilt mm. because you've survived and so many of your friends haven't. And you wonder, you know, why, you know, why have, why have I managed to survive and, and they haven't? It's weird. It's weird. And, you know, that went on. I suppose it's only been in the last maybe 10 years that I've kind of thrown that off because it's pointless. I, th I think um, probably a lot of people um, who will be listening to this uh, maybe saw It's a Sin um, quite recently. And I think that had a huge impact um, on like younger generations being able to watch that and understand. I mean, I, I said, even though I was born in the 80s, I don't think I was really old enough to, you know, really understand what was happening. So watching something like that really had a hard impact on me. Um, there were several really extremely harrowing scenes in that uh, program where there was a, a Scottish guy that died of AIDS and his family burnt all of his possessions because they were so ashamed. There was also stories that came out about um, families of those that died um, adopting partners of, of loved ones, which was incredibly heartwarming. Two very, very extreme ends of the spectrum I mean, did you witness any of this sort of thing firsthand? Oh, you know, the numbers of, of, of funerals that lovers were not allowed to go to, where they were completely disinherited and where sort of they had shared a flat and that was their home. But because the partner who died owned the flat, they were thrown out on the street. I mean, it was, it was just awful. You know, one of the amazing things that, that happened through being involved with lesbian and gay men support the minors was that when the strike came to an end, and yes, they, they lost, the South Wales miners put pressure on the National Union of Miners to use their block vote, and they then encouraged other unions, print unions, to get lesbian and gay rights onto the, into the Labour Party manifesto. So when Tony Blair got to power in 97, they actually started to move. And from that, we had civil partnerships. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, for me, if only we had had civil partnerships back in the 80s, when that could never have happened, when suddenly you had, as a, as a gay man, you had rights. Yeah. And yeah. none of that would happen. And, you know, I've, I've just done a, there's a, um, a, a podcast or it's, it's, I don't know quite what you call it, but, but this evening at six o'clock, I'm on, um, giving a plug here, um, Virgin, <laughs> Virgin Pride Radio. Um, and they've done a kind of desert island discs. And in it, in the, in the kind of sort of intro, I actually speak specifically about the very fact that, that, that you know, there were people who were thrown out of their yeah. flats, you know, made outcasts you know, lovers who were not allowed to sort of go to funerals. And, and so it was, as you say, it was all there in, in, in It's a Sin. Yeah. Do you, think, do you think a programme like that, I mean, surely it must have helped raise awareness. I think it helped raise awareness. I mean, what was really interesting, apparently sort of Terence again said that, that their testing went up by 400%. Wow. I mean, wow. Which, is, which is great. The difficulty is that, that these things are not maintained. And mm. I think that, that what is really important is that, that there is every possibility, particularly in this country, because we have a national health service. We have the medication, we have access to the medication. Anybody who, who tests positive for HIV gets access to the medication, wherever you've come from. You know? and, and that is, you know, something which is amazing, you know, part of the National mm. Health Service. How long that'll last, who knows? But anyway, it is. so there is every possibility with having that, with having this thing called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylactics, that people can take that will stop you getting HIV. It ain't going to stop you getting syphilis, gonorrhea, you know, hepatitis C, but it will stop you getting HIV. And at the moment, there is no vaccine. For HIV. You know, what is phenomenal when you think about COVID, COVID came along and what within nine months there were vaccines? 40 years there's been HIV and they are only just beginning because of the MDMA vaccines that, that came with COVID. They're only just beginning to, to work on a vaccine for HIV. Wow. It just, it, it's, it's beggar's belief really, isn't it? It's sort of like, why does it take so much, you know, why does it happen so quickly for one thing and not for another? Vicky and I were talking about monkeypox and how the reaction to that has been, the way it's been, like it sorry? It's been just like it was with HIV. The very first thing, you know, it's the gays, you know, it's like I mean, they haven't learned from their mistakes the first time round. It's like we haven't moved on at all. I haven't. Mm. But I went to have my, you know, uh, get the the monkeypox vaccine because I just thought, you know, I'm going travelling. I think I would like to be, you know, prepared. But, and I had it as a kid, and I remember. So I got to to eventually. It took about three hours to to get to my point when I'm going to get the jab 
and I said to the, 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 the young nurse who was going to, to be injecting me, I said, oh, is this like the smallpox vaccination I had as a kid? Oh, you've had it. So I better go and check with the doctor whether you can have it again. So I thought, I've waited three hours to get this. <laughs> I'm going to have it. Anyway, he went away and he came back and he said, yes, yes, absolutely you can. You know, people of your generation will, of course, have had it. So, so is it the same vaccine? It's the same vaccine. But what's interesting is that I just remember having one jab. But apparently there is a second. So I should get a second one. Whether I'll be able to get one, I don't know. Because the government have funded the first jab, but they haven't funded the second jab. You just think, all right, we're back, all. <laughs> back here again. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful documentary um, that you featured on Call Positive, and it was phenomenal. It was, it was, yeah, yeah it yeah. was just so I mean it was interesting and it, it covered so much of the history of HIV and AIDS and as you said it talked about that campaign which put not only the fear of God in people but put the fear of God in people of people who had HIV yes. um, yeah. and one of the things I thought was quite interesting in, in talking about medication and finding cures or ways to help was the um, experimental treatment with the placebo and would you mind telling our viewers about that? Because that was quite a turning point. Yeah, that, there, was, there was this thing called the Concord trial. Um, and I was actually asked if, if I would be a part of it. And I remember them sort of saying, well, basically you have this cohort, so this group of people, and you cut it in half and one half gets the pill and the other half gets the placebo. So they're, they're obviously wanting to see whether the placebo works better than the pill or what it's, it's, I suppose it's a control. And I said to them, well, with this group, do you kind of pair us up? So someone who's got a similar build to me or metabolism um, as me, you know, we're paired up and one of us gets the pill and the other gets the placebo and then you can kind of see who is doing better. And they went, oh, no, 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 that's far too complicated. And I just saw red and I got a bit belligerent and I went, well, now, you see, if you could put a block of wood down the middle of me and you give one half of me the pill and the other half of the placebo, that I think is a trial. But if you can't be bothered to pair them up, I can't be bothered to do the trial. And I actually think that that's one of the reasons that I'm here today, because AZT, which was a failed chemotherapy drug, um, and with old chemotherapy drugs, what they used to do was they would wipe out the cancer and wipe out your whole immune system, leaving you basically open to any opportunistic infection. And so a lot of people who tried the AZT, it only worked for about three months and then it had nothing, but your system had been wiped out. So you were open to anything. And that's when all these various opportunistic infections, the PCP, pneumonia, the pneumocystic, um, the, the, the uh, 
CMV retinitis where you go blind. It's, it's you know, all these things could could uh, come and just, and that's basically what killed them. So by my not doing that, I think that that's one of the reasons that, that I'm still here to to talk. Wow. I don't know, it sounds like it was so close that you were going to take part in it. Yeah, but it was that point that they just went, oh, no, we don't do that. And I just, I saw red. I couldn't understand it. Didn't it For me, it didn't make sense. And I'm sure that, that you know, they'll tell you, well, you know, because it was a it was a trial, it was a blind trial, so they wouldn't know who was what. So, you know, whatever. But but people I, would have jumped on it because people were desperate. No, 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 absolutely. And mm. in some ways, I suppose that I wasn't desperate. I didn't. That there was part of me that didn't care if I lived or died. I, I think that's that's weird, but maybe that's just you know I'm just at times a depressive, and so my way of dealing with it you talk about that's your way of dealing with it I your attitude um because you believe your diagnosis was a death sentence has been very much like bugger it because I could be dead in a few months like you talked about that was that's why you moved in with Nigel and things like that (laughs) it's actually a, a mantra that people seek to live by you know that whole live for the moment um sort of type of thing do you think you would have lived life to this extent had you not had that diagnosis oh I doubt it I think I'd have been dead long ago if I'd not had the diagnosis I I don't know I I have no idea what would have happened to me in in a way the kind of having the diagnosis has been the making of me I mean it's weird thing to say but you know I've been incredibly, incredibly, I mean, you know, the, the, the very fact that I should see this little advertisement that I go along, that I meet Nigel, you know, Nigel and I sort of were together for, for uh, take your time, 39 years, almost 39 years. It's a long, long time. Yeah. You know, and, there were good times, there were difficult times, he bless him. Um, in 2013, um, had a sort of a massive stroke and that robbed him of his mobility and his, you know, he used to write the most amazing haiku. That was his chosen form. He wrote plays and but but his chosen form were were, were haiku and um, for his 70th birthday I commissioned a a friend of ours to um, make a book for him which was called 70 haikus from Nigel for Nigel (laughs) this friend um, Langley Iddins actually made, physically made, the first book, the number one, for Nigel, in a little box. I mean, it's just beautiful. And, uh, and then we had another 69 printed. So wow. made up and printed. And, uh, and of course, there weren't enough, because one wanted lots of people to, to, to have them. So then I said, well, 
could we sort of um, do a, 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 a soft back version? And he said, yeah, because, you know, we've got the galleys and, and what's his name. So it's just, so mm -hmm. it's here. This is, this is, this is the, uh, this so is. Oh, fabulous. Oh, look at that. Oh. Yeah. I, will, I will send you each one. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So, you know, but, but I wanted there to be something, you know, to show, you know, Nigel what he'd, he'd done and and in it there are there are lots of photographs of him oh, no. photographs of him writing and it, oh, it I mean it's just it's 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 fabulous it's just so I'm going to be taking those on my travels when I meet nice people <laughs> again I guess it can't be I think um I'm going to be over overweight <laughs> <laughs> We've um we've all got wet eyes now after that. Yeah. But um I would you mind? No, no, absolutely. I was just gonna say, Nigel, um, he sounds like the love of your life. Would you what was he like? Oh, he was extraordinary. I mean, he was like a little elf. You know? <laughs> he, was, he really was. I mean, kind of he was incredibly sort of he was an elf and he was a Gemini, so you know, kind of split couldn't make decisions, um, <laughs> but just extraordinary. I mean, you know, politically astute, um, you know, gone through sort of, well, he was bright, so he'd gone through grammar school. And I think that that because of of when Harold Wilson came in, that, that they wanted to sort of bring kids up. So he in the sort of, uh, late 60s was at the the london school of economics which of course was a hotbed of, uh, of political agitation um and he was always very 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 political um and you know a socialist um he was part of the gay left collective which was a, a small group of of people so emmanuel cooper sort of of the the cup um he was uh, he was part of it and Nigel and Emmanuel had a relationship. Um, so, but he was just amazing and generous and very gregarious. So, so this thing of the stroke was just awful. He had a very dear friend, um, Philip Rush, who Philip and he, you know, we had an open relationship and Philip and he um, ha also had a, a, a relationship but we weren't troilistic, so there weren't three of us in that. Um, but they were very involved in rubber and the leather scene, and, and I could never deal with the idea of rubber. Getting I'm, sure, I'm sure it takes an acquired taste. I think it does. <laughs> anyway, it, it certainly it, it wasn't for me, um, but, but they enjoyed it, and that's great, and all power to, to them. Um, but anyway, Philip developed um, cancer and um, it metastasized to his liver. And when Philip could no longer live at his house, he came to live upstairs with Nigel. And then he would always, Nigel never had a television because he was too busy for television, you know, just. So they would always come downstairs to watch, Philip liked to watch the news. So they would come down 
and I would cook or Nigel would cook or between us we'd, we'd prepare food and we'd all eat down here. Um, and it was amazing. But after Philip died and Nigel, you know, created his his uh, his funeral his uh, his uh, celebration of his life and everything and i think that that his body was telling him to stop and he wasn't listening to his body so the body just said All right i'll give you a stroke you won't argue with that mm -hmm. it's, it's weird how kind of uh, how you know your body tells you stuff and if you don't listen it find a way to trip you up gosh um, so yeah so sort of um, that was that was awful awful sort of for him but you know we we managed and you know he had we have and just the, the most amazing sort of group of friends and people that he's known for like 50 years um so they all rallied round and and were there. So sort of um, yeah, we you know we had a, a an, an amazing, absolutely extraordinary life. And you've yeah. left such a legacy. Both of you have left such a legacy behind. Absolutely. Yeah, it it seems like it. I mean, I I I I find it. You know, I kind of feel like I'm the kind of poor relation, but actually I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> he says that but but it is amazing i mean i was thinking what on earth am i going to do with with all of nigel's stuff because there were just boxes and boxes and i had to clear his flat upstairs because it's part of a housing carpet's got to be rightly so someone's got to to to, to live there because we rent mm -hmm. so we own property um and this amazing archive, the Bishopsgate Institute, came in and they said, we will take it all. We will take it all. We will, we will catalogue it. We will put it online. People can access, you know. And they're going to, to also take mine. Wow. So at some point I'll just dig out all my stuff and let them have it. And, and then they'll be kind of so... There'll be both the pair of us, but also separate because, you know, there was part of me before sort of my, you know, acting. But actually then, then that didn't stop because what was extraordinary when, when the film Pride came out, um, someone called um, Patrick Cash, um, who's a playwright, and he worked at, at 56 Dean Street. Um, and he had this thing called HIV Conversations. And he said, oh, would you like to come and do an HIV conversation with me? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm happy to, you know, because any excuse to, to be able to talk about mm -hmm. HIV and living with HIV to me is important. You know, so the fact that, that you've invited me to talk, to, I've just so happy that other people will get to hear about living with HIV and that it's not a death sentence and it can be made positive and yes it's hard but you know so anyway so I did that and it was great I loved doing it and then about 18 months after we'd done it he said um actually I've I've written a play and 
there's a character that's based on you and would you like to to read it and i went oh yeah i would and i read it and i thought this is fabulous so he said well we'd like to do some rehearsed readings i thought got a book i can do that and then he said actually we're going to do some performances and i thought yeah i can do that <laughs> so that then happened so i was back on the boards and then he wrote a web series called the grass is always grinder and he wrote <laughs> and he wrote a character for me there you know he was called Francis or Sister Insatiable Fallacia. <laughs> I, was, I was a, I was, I was a, 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 a sister of perpetual indulgence, and I'd always wanted to be a sister of perpetual. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> Living the brilliant. dream. But of course, oh. you your work in your um, the costume design—that's been a huge part of your life, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, but no, but it wasn't costume design. I was a costume maker. Sorry. What was amazing was that, that Ken Livingstone, who is often vilified, but when Ken Livingstone was um, the leader of the, the GLC, so the Greater London Council before Thatcher abolished it, um, they had the Inner London Education Authority under their belt. And he had this amazing idea that if you were out of work and unemployed, you could pay one pound and for a year, you could do any number of courses, City Lit, Morley College, any other education place. And it was just phenomenal. And Nigel and a friend of his, Barry Prothero, were going to do a tailoring course or a trouser making course um, at one of the institutes. And I said, oh, that sounds fun. Can I come along too? Yeah, the more the merrier. So we paid our pound, we go along. And there's this lovely elderly Jewish tailor called Harry. And the first thing that Harry says is, right, I want you to sit cross-legged on the table. Now, we were in the, the, the old chemistry laboratories, so there are these high tables. My father used to sell furniture. He was a house furnisher. If you ever sat on a table, you were screamed at, chairs of sitting on, not tables. So Harry, with one phrase, had given me permission. So I'm sitting up there cross-legged, doing the tatting. And I think, how many pairs of trousers do I need? What I really need to learn is how to make a pattern. And somebody pipes up, oh, they do that at the London College of Fashion in Shoreditch. Well, I think I've paid my pound. <laughs> so, <laughs> I go down to the, to the London College of Fashion. I enrol. And I'm loving doing this pattern-making course. And one of the tutors said, I don't know if you'd be interested, but we run a, a, a three-year City and Gills um, tailoring course. And I thought, I'm going to be dead before I finish that. But, yeah, why not? So I did. And I went to Lambeth and I said, you know, I've had a grant. And these were grants, not loans. I've had a grant for, 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 for acting. Could you see your way to getting me a grant for, for doing the London College of Fashion, City and Gilstead? And they did. So I went and I did that. And suddenly three years have gone by. I finished. I've got this distinction. I've come out with a, with a diploma, you know. 
but what am I going to do? I knew I couldn't go and work down Savile Road. I mean, what, what, what on earth was I going to do? And one of the tutors said, well, I can't get you a job, but I could get you an introduction to the wardrobe at English National Opera. And I thought, I love opera. It's so overblown. I've been an actor, so theatre holds no mystique. So I went along and I remember going along and I was told to go and sit in the workroom. And I'm feeling very nervous and I'm sitting in the workroom and everybody is busy on their sewing machines. So I'm looking around at the notice board and my eye hits on a letter from St Mary's Hospital Paddington thanking everybody in the workroom for all their support that they had given to this guy called Peter, Peter Barr, who had just died from HIV AIDS. And I thought, I want to work here because when I get ill, they'll understand. And I got the job and it was, first of all, it was, it was freelance. So it was full-time freelance. I would go there, I would work, but you know, I wasn't on the books. And of course, what I wanted was sick pay. So I wanted to be on the books, I wanted to be paid. And eventually, they laid me off in the, the summer, but then started again the, the next season. And the same thing went on. Oh, no, we're in negotiations with the union. And eventually I thought, oh, there's a job at the BBC. I'll go and apply for the job at the BBC. And then I'll say to Eno, I've been offered this job. And they'll go, oh, no, we want you to keep. So I did that. And they went, oh, no, you should take the job at the BBC. Oh, God. I went there. You were an alteration hand. It was the worst thing that I'd ever done. And I thought, I have really blown this, you know, hoisted by my own whatever. And one day I'm feeling miserable. I'm in the green room at the BBC and I pick up a copy of the stage and in it is this tiny advertisement, English National Opera seeking first and second hands. So I ring them up and I said, could you send me an application form? Application form. They say, we know you. There's a job for you. I said, so much for equal opportunities policy. <laughs> so I went back there and, and I was there till my health gave out in 96. Right, you were in the right place at the right time to pick up that copy of the stage. I was. I was. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess... You talk about how lucky you have been. It's, it's so incredibly refreshing to hear you say that because, of course, you've had this huge diagnosis and, you know, you've had to deal with that all your life. But you talk about how you want to educate and how you want to talk and support others and share your experiences. You were fundamental in the um, movement to educate about HIV and the U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmissible. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, what was amazing was that, that, that I think it was 2015 that U equals U was suddenly kind of, was, became the flavour of the month. And my neighbour across the garden is also a, a, an HIV activist. And he had been to Paris um, where there were T-shirts which had undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and he had got one and he said it was too big for him and it would fit me and he gave it to me. It was, it was the proudest moment that I got being able to go off and just wear this t-shirt you know um 
And hearing that was just, something just lit up in my brain. The very fact that suddenly you are being told that if you are on effective medication, that your viral load is suppressed to the point that it is undetectable, that I cannot infect somebody else is just the most amazing. I mean, it is such a release, the fact that I cannot pass this virus. You know, I can have unprotected sex. I cannot do it. You know, I may get all kinds of other things, but, you know, uh, and that was, was just, and I thought it was really, really important. So for me, it was, you know, yeah, another thing, you know, just wave the banner, let people know, because I think it's important that people understand, because there was so much misinformation given by the right-wing press um, about it, and that, that there has been this terrible build-up of stigma, and, you know, stigma is what gets in the way, and I feel so sorry for all these sort of African women, you know, who've had to deal with not only sort of, you know, being, being sort of attacked for the color of their skin, but the fact that, that they're HIV positive and that, that this stigma, which has nothing to do with them, it's all to do with the fact that the gay press or the, the right-wing press, you know, wanting to sort of paint gays into a corner, that they've had to kind of pick up and deal with that. And, you know, it's it's wretched. Um, so for me, it was it's always important to just talk about it and normalize it, and to actually big up the, the National Health Service. You know that without having this National Health Service, I wouldn't be here. You know to have had access, you know, to the medication when it when it happened. I mean, I was fortunate in that that I wasn't on it until when my health gave out in 1996, I, one of the things that I kept getting was shingles. It was like my bugbear, you know, and of course, once you've had chicken pox, you can get shingles. So, but I kept getting it and the final straw was that I got it internally on my phrenic nerve oh. and I hiccuped nonstop for 10 days till my GP gave me Largactil, the chemical caution that quieted me down and poor old Nigel who was sleeping upstairs could just hear me heaving, heaving, heaving. Oh gosh. And I was sort of exhausted by it and eventually I got over that and then my HIV consultant said look you know you've only got 70 T cells left in your viral load because viral load had suddenly in 1997 viral load testing came in and that was a game changer. And you know, what is never recognised, if there hadn't been viral load testing for HIV, there would be none of this PCR tests for COVID. Mm. It's the same technology. Do they ever mention it? You know, nothing. It's, it's ridiculous. Wow. With Because obviously you want the message out there. You want to keep talking about HIV, even though it feels like, you know, medically and scientifically, we've turned massive corners in how we can prevent it, how we can help people. What is the message you want to give to people, especially those who have just been diagnosed with HIV? Well, I think, you know, 
I mean, one of the messages is that honestly, yes, it's difficult, but it is not, you know, this death sentence, which it was. And we are very fortunate here in the West that we have access to medication. So grab it and run with it. You know, there are many, many other people who do not have that access. And, you know, what is fantastic is, you know, South Africa and India create generic things. And of course, what makes me so angry is Big Pharma. What they do is that they, they put patents on uh, 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 a concoction. But the patents only last for a certain time. So what they do is they slightly tweak it and they rename it and they then slap another patent on it. Well, thank heavens for the, the generics, which you know India and, and South Africa and, and other places are making, so that you know you get access to, to medication which is affordable as opposed to this overinflated you know, prices that Big Pharma charge. I mean, at least with COVID, you know, Big Pharma acknowledged that, that they couldn't be charging, you know, poor, poor nations that money. But somewhere they'll do it. I've, um, I think both Vicky and I can sit here and chat to you for hours and hours and hours about your life and everything that you're doing. I mean, your your life has been incredibly inspirational and I I thank you again for sharing it with us. If you we do something on Strong Tea called the final sip, it's a bit like Springer's final thought. Um, <laughs> and it basically is an opportunity for you to wrap up the show and say your final thoughts or your final advice or just anything that you want to get out there that you think people need to hear this is this is the platform we like to to give for that so give us your final sip my final sip well basically would be if you want to do something do it don't listen to all those naysayers if you know if you if there is something that you want to do in your life just go out and do it and you will find that there will always be other people who will actually go, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I'll come and play. And that's what exactly what you're going to do, isn't it? Because you're off on your travels yeah. very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> I, am. I am. Nigel, bless him, left me some money. And I thought, I'm 73. I've never been to Australia. I've always wanted to go to Australia and New Zealand. And... I'm going and I mean I can't can't believe it but but yeah so well, bless him please <laughs> please keep us in the loop and let us know what you get up Definitely. to send us, send us some photos so we can pop you on our end of year show um, right. and, yeah. and a li little little update of what you've been doing Fabulous. no it'll be a pleasure it'll be listen thank you so much I mean it's been such a treat Oh, oh thank no, thank you. you. Honestly, we're fangirling hard here, Jonathan. Oh, we are. Love you. We, <laughs> we are. And, and we are going to make that trip to London uh, yeah. to come for cake, tea and cake, which you very kindly offered us. No, 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 do, do. Yeah. 
We'd love to do that. We absolutely would. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I kept my knitting up so I could knit something for Freddie. But oh, oh, well, you know, it's, it's now, now, now it's time to pick it back up again. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How well, about I'm, a scarf? While I'm doing all that sort of uh, time board board time on the turn the uh, the video off. Let me just do my knitting. Yeah, on the plane. You'll have all that time on the plane. Can you imagine all that clicking and cursing? <laughs> Are you actually allowed to take knitting needles on a plane? I don't anymore? think so. I don't. Think so. <laughs> They've got to be blunted and brown now. Yeah. <laughs> thank oh, you thank, thank you, you so much jonathan a pleasure thank you um and thank you everyone sorry vicky i've just trodden no. on you there if you were going to finish off sorry well thank you everyone for listening um please do listen to all the other shows that we have got on spotify apple google podcasts and amazon audible uh, we have got lots and lots of different content on there and it's been a pleasure as always vicky and you thank you That's it's right. all me it's Wait. all me <laughs> <laughs> and we will catch you all very soon for the next episode of Strong Tea. Bye. Bye. Bye.